going to go back into Second Corinthians, but before we do, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday to gather with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ to open the scriptures together, to pray together, to receive the Lord's Supper together, and to sit under the teaching of the Word. And as you work through these means of grace, we have confidence that you'll graciously change us more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for the saints that are scattered around the world, some of whom don't have a good church to go to. We pray that you would bless them and protect them and care for them and feed them and um, help them find the remnant that they might gather together. We commit this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Some really good material here in 2 Corinthians 8 about giving and grace. As we've been saying, the number one thing we need to know about uh, being generous in giving is that it's a work of grace. Okay? And it's not a law. It's not um, a command. It's not a fundraising scheme, it's not anything like that, but Christians being generous have to do with having received grace and then wanting to therefore participate in what Paul calls this gracious work. And the gracious work is not only that we give for the proclamation of the gospel, which we certainly do, but we also give to one another and help those who are in need around us. And so in this case, Paul was wanting the Corinthians, who a year earlier had already agreed to participate in this collection for the relief for the poor and persecuted Christians in Judea. And in that intervening time, Paul had told them about what happened in Macedonia, which was north of Corinth. Corinth was in Achaia. And in Macedonia, they were also poor. They were also persecuted, like the churches in Judea. And they had actually begged Paul for the privilege of participating in giving for the saints in Judea. And so Paul used that as a wonderful example of the grace of God at work in the hearts and minds of Christians. But that sets the stage. Paul had received a favorable report from Titus that the Corinthians had received his severe letter, and there had been some repentance, and they were back in, he was back in their uh, esteem. So, setting the stage, let's now go to 2 Corinthians 8.8. 8. Paul says, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. The others he has in mind are the Macedonians that earlier in this chapter served as an example of generous Christians who gave even out of their own need to help others. But he starts out by saying, I'm not speaking this as a command. Now, Paul, in a couple of places in the Corinthian correspondence, has times where he gives advice that he says is not a command from Christ. 
he does so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a couple different times. All right? Now, I believe that Paul's teaching that he, actually, that he got came from the resurrected Christ who he met bodily. And that's what Paul claimed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right? And the other disciples, the other apostles, had all been taught by Christ in the flesh bodily for the three years. And then for the little bit of time before the ascension. Paul called himself one who was born as one out of time because he met in a special appearance of the resurrected Christ after the ascension. Paul received the New Testament teachings directly from Christ. Now, in some cases, things came up that weren't part of that material that he received command from Christ. And that happened in 1 Corinthians 7, where he said, I do not have a command from Christ, but here's my opinion. And it happens again here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In this case, he doesn't have a command from Christ about the offering. So he's careful to make sure that they don't think this is a command. Um, Now, the term command is used elsewhere in the New Testament. And one of the places is in Titus 1 and verse 3, which I think is instructive. We'll start with you, Robert, being how you have the mic there. Titus 1 and verse 3. Let's see what Christ did command Paul. Titus 1, verse 3. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Okay, he was commanded to preach the gospel. And that was one of the things that was clearly the command of Christ. It was committed to Paul to preach the gospel. Now, let's look at this you know, bigger picture again and, and see what he's saying. Now, you have an entire church, the Corinthian church. And earlier they'd begun to take up this offering. We'll see that in a moment. The Macedonians had begged for the opportunity to participate and had given generously beyond their means. Now, when Paul says he believes that they that the Corinthians should follow suit and that they should follow their example, as we saw last week in verse seven, um, just as you abounded everything, faith, utterance, knowledge, things that they were proud of, and, and love, and so on, abound in this gracious work. So. He believes it's the right thing and a good thing that the church and individuals therein would be a part of this gracious work and would give. But he's not commanding this. In other words, he's not saying, I command every member of this church to give their money now to this offering. He doesn't want to do that. And if any feel that they don't want to give for the offering, they're free not to. But he does believe it's the right thing for the church as a whole to do. But what any individual does is between them and the Lord. So I think that we're learning a lot about how giving should be handled in the church as we see the pattern that Paul lays down here. And honestly, I think that if churches would follow this pattern, it would be so much better 
than the various things we've come up with over the, in church history about how to raise money. Church history is filled with horrible money-making scams, not the, not the least of which is in abhorrence was the idea of selling indulgences, that people were tormented in purgatory and lacking enough merit to get out of there and gaining merits as their relatives give money to the church. That abuse of Christian giving, or it's more like extortion, God puts people in punishment and then you have to bribe him to get them out. He set off the Reformation, and rightly so, that there was a Reformation and that there were 95 theses to protest that. But unfortunately, Protestants have become pretty good at coming up with other ones, just they're not quite so blatant. Okay? And some of the ones that are around, for example, uh, there are those who are saying that if you give money to us or to me, then God is going to be very happy with you and he's going to make you rich. Now, we're having a conference uh, in September with Justin Peters to talk about the problem with that whole thinking and that whole movement that's, that's behind it. There are other things that we've, we've discussed here where churches go into debt and then come up with schemes for people to help them try to get out of it when they really don't have the, the budget. But the matter of fact is, if we just would read the Scriptures, and especially 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where we have the most... Um, focused material on this topic, we'd see a pattern that if we follow that, there's, God will bless it. He will, he will bless it. It's just the biblical pattern. Nobody will be abused. Everybody will be free. And Christians will be generous because they've always been. But is it a lot better to be generous in a godly way, in freedom, than to be extorted? So Paul says, I'm not speaking this as a command. But is proving, now here's this word, dokimazo, a word I really do like. It's found quite a few times in the New Testament. And dokimazo means to test, to determine the genuineness of something. Same word is used in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, and also in 1 Corinthians 11:28. Now, what are those passages? Well, they're about, in that case, Testing ourselves. Let's look at those. I'm going to turn, let's all turn to those. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Dokimazo, same word in the Greek. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? So here, the word dokimazo is to examine something to determine if it's genuine. And Paul is telling the Corinthians and us, because this is in inspired writings of the Bible, that we should examine ourselves and and put ourselves to the test to see if indeed... There's evidence that Christ is actually at work in our lives. Because there is such a thing as false assurance. Right? And there's a lot of ways. Oh, that reminds me, I was going to do this. Now, on Labor Day, when 
Very few are here. I finally remember. I remember at the oddest times. <laughs> no, I'm never going to teach about that. When it comes time for that sermon, Dick, you're appointed. <laughs> Organization. I'm trying to turn me into a hypocrite, aren't you? <laughs> Be thou organized. <laughs> no. I wanted to, to, to commend this. this. This is called Judgment Day, Are You Ready? And a little clip of this is on our website that has the gospel part. And it's done by SO4J, Sold Out for Jesus Group. And what this is, is some, they, they worked and worked and worked and worked on this. They interviewed me for like three hours last summer one day and shot all of this video. And it was like ten ways that people have false assurance. We went through ten of them. I was baptized when I was a baby. Uh, things like that, okay? I belong to a denomination. So we went through all of those and then shared how you could truly know that you're saved. And, though, and they took and edited this and edited it into a... And I don't know how they did such a good job because they actually make me look like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, that's some good editing. Anyhow, we have this available at our bookstore and I highly recommend it. And I think that the, the value of this would be for someone to use as a tool to help people, to, to witness to people. Or to maybe bring some people over that you know that want to get together and watch this and then discuss it afterwards. So, I think we have it in the bookstore, which probably won't be open today, so there you go. It is open? Okay. It will be open. You can get, get that DVD. So, false assurance. Another thing, we just, Dick and I just did radio about a version of this that offers assurance based on mental sin. What these people that we're discussing say is this. Faith is nothing more than mental assent to facts. If you add anything to that, then you're teaching salvation by works. So the, the idea is that if you believe the facts that Jesus, was, let's say basically the Apostles' Creed or some basic statement about Jesus, and you believe those facts, even if you don't trust Jesus, and even if you don't continue to believe the facts, you're saved for all eternity. And so we, we did two radio shows on that, on that teaching. Now, is that what Paul's saying here? Let's look at our verse. Is he saying, test yourselves to see at one time in your life you used to have mental uh, said about certain facts. Is that what, can you fit that into this verse? No. He's not saying, oh yeah, um, you believed certain things about Jesus. He says this. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. That is, the faith is once for all delivered to the saints. That you're truly in the faith as God has proclaimed it in the Word of God and through the Scriptures. And it says examine yourself. So test means to, to, um, to look at something, dokimazo, to see if it's genuine. And it says, or don't you recognize this about you, that Jesus is in you unless you fail to test. So there may be, because there's a visible church and an invisible church, the visible church is anyone who assembles with the Christians. All the Christians assembled is a visible church, or all the people assembled with Christians. And there may be in the visible church some who aren't really passing the test. Okay? And Paul recognizes that, so he says that's something that each person should do. 
Is Jesus Christ really living in me? Am I in the faith? Is this the real thing? And there are a number of signs about assurance. And if that's something that you struggle with. See, it's not my job to take away people's assurance if they're in the faith. But it is my job as a pastor to make sure nobody has false assurance because the eternal consequences are too great. Okay. Yes, Casey. Okay, I have a question. Uh, you said um, belie- believing versus trusting, and I'm thinking, how can somebody truly believe in Christ? Believe who, that He said who He, uh, that He is who He said He was, and um, He accomplished what He did do, and not trust. So, could you provide a nuanced answer okay. on the difference between All right. trust and belief? We, we briefly mentioned this in the radio shows. Ryan once, I think he, we may have covered this in systematic theology. Remember the three Latin terms, ascensus, notitia, and fiducia? Okay. The reform, reformers taught, and I believe this, this part of reformed theology, that all three are part of saving faith. Okay. Ascensus would be the mental ascent. I assent to the facts about Jesus. Notitia would be more like our, how would you say it? The notitia part is, I ascend to the facts and I recognize the significance. Okay? It's one thing to know something happens. It's another to know what's, what's the significance of what happened. And, and there's ramifications and implications about the fact that God incarnate lived on the face of the earth and that Jesus did these miracles and that he was sinless and that he died and that he rose and he ascended into heaven, that his blood was shed. That's a significant thing. So you have the ascent, the notice, the significance, notitia, and fiducia, which is trust. And that's where one is trusting the finished work of Christ for their own forgiveness of sins. And we believe and affirm that all three of those are validly part of saving faith. And a lot of people with false assurance only have the first one, okay? And maybe you go to church every Sunday, like I, like I did, and recite the Apostles' Creed. Well, the Apostles' Creed has the basic facts about Jesus, wouldn't we have to say? All right? I, I recited that as a lost person for like 16 years. And then I, I've told the story over and over again, but it's, it's so central to who I am and what's happened in my life that I'll never get away from the story. The story was that when I was 16, a Nordain minister told me that those facts that we recited in the Apostles' Creed, although he didn't mention that, but he did mention the facts, are false. Jesus didn't do miracles, and there's no resurrection, so he said. And I was utterly scandalized. I was scandalized that they forced me to swear before the church when I was 12 that I believed those things to join the church and then tell me at 16 they never happened. And what kind of a system demands that people swear to things that the pastor doesn't, or some pastors, it was a different pastor by this time. And so I was, I was offended and I scandalized and I got out of the church best I could, the quick as I could. And I, I didn't want to shame my parents, so I kept going with them when I was until I got about 18, and I said, okay, now I'm going to the golf course. I got bold when I was 18. But I was saved when I was 20, when I was converted, and then I knew that all those things were true. And when you're converted by the work of God's grace, 
you know. It's, it's the amazing thing, and I bet you dozens of people in this room could testify of the same thing. When you're converted, and somebody says, well, when you're first saved, you ask, well, what should I do? And usually I tell you to read the Bible, right? And often they say, read the Gospel of John. So I did. I got the Gospel of John, and I was reading it. And I was like, wow, all those little Sunday school stories are true. <laughs> this really happened. This, this is, I can be a disciple. It isn't just some guys in history, but there are still disciples. Not apostles, but disciples. Okay, so if you don't have all three of those, a census, notitia, and fiducia, it may not be true that you're in the faith. What should someone do if they do the test and they find that they're not in the faith? Go ahead, Reverend. Um, I was reading my study notes here in my Geneva Study Bible and uh, commenting on um, 2 Corinthians 13.5. I was saying that uh, Paul's words help clarify the doctrine of assurance of faith. Paul asked the Corinthians to examine their own lives for evidence of salvation, saying such evidence would include trusting in Christ, Hebrews 3.6, yep. obedience to God, Matthew 7.21, Growth and holiness, Hebrews 12:14, 1 John 3:3. 3, 3. The fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5:22-23. Love for other Christians, 1 John 3:14. Positive influence on others, Matthew 5:16. Adhering to the apostolic teaching, 1 John 4:2, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit within them, according to Romans 8:16. Yeah. That's a good summary. Now. Someone might say, well, I'm not so sure. That's an awful lot. I don't know if that holds me. But remember when Peter said, if, you're, if these things are yours and increasing, you, there's a wide open door of salvation. I'm not trying to take away assurance because there's, there's two problems. One of them is people who are truly Christians who struggle with assurance, who ought to have it. And sometimes true Christians have their assurance stripped away from them from le- by legalists. Okay? They're perfectionists, the people that teach false doctrine. They steal assurance from true Christians. And the other problem would be granting assurance when you really don't know Christ. So we want to, uh, if you want to read about this, Ryan, Pastor Ryan wrote a book called The Anchor of Assurance. And it is, really does have a very good summary of all the issues about assurance. And I recommend it. It's a little booklet, The Anchor of Assurance. Another source, if you want to read this, if you've ever read the book, The Gospel According to the Apostles by John MacArthur, there's a chapter in there on assurance because his critics claim that MacArthur obviously can't believe in such a thing as assurance of salvation. And so MacArthur defends himself against that false charge that he doesn't believe in assurance of salvation. And he wrote a very nice chapter is very, I think, quite definitive about the issue of assurance. But the test here would, you know, the point of the test is hopefully a positive outcome, that Christ is in us. Now, there's another time this is used, and it's it's used at communion, and let's talk about that because today's communion Sunday. Doki Madso is used in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 28. Same word that Paul used in 2 Corinthians 8, testing the earnestness and the sincerity of your love. But here it says, But let a man examine or test, dokimazo himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body 
rightly. Now, there is a lot of discussion. It's a difficult verse, frankly. What does Paul mean by judge the body rightly? Now, there's a number of, there's a number of ideas that have been discussed in church history about this, and one of which would be the people who are believe in substanti- various substantiation doctrines. So them, to them, the body would be the elements that actually become the blood and, and, and body of Christ in some, some literal way. And that's understanding the body rightly, but there's, that's certainly anachronistic to think Paul was talking about that when it didn't even exist until hundreds of years later in church history. Okay, the, the doctrine didn't even exist. So why is Paul talking about something that nobody had even thought of? So I'm going to reject that out of hand. But it is certainly possible that what the issue is, is failure to understand the significance of the Lord's Supper. Okay, so is he talking about the body of Christ being the church that we don't understand rightly, or the body of Christ being the literal body and blood of Christ that was, you know, crucified and the blood that was shed? And is that what he's talking about? So that's the issue that came up. But looking in the context, we can see that in some ways both things are true. And maybe there's sort of a comprehensive understanding of this because I've mentioned this. I won't have, I'll do this now. I'm probably not repeated upstairs, but when we talk about this judging, there were three things that they were doing wrong in Corinth that caused Paul to tell them to start dokimazo, to make a judgment. All right. Three things they were doing wrong in the context. Number one, there, was, there were schisms and factions. So that would be failure to judge the body of Christ rightly. In other words, what, makes, what comprises the body of Christ? What makes us the body of Christ? Is it that I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Barnabas, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of one of these super apostles? So they had schisms and factions that were lined up under personalities rather than everyone being under the headship of Christ, the only true head of the church. So that would certainly be a failure of judging the body correctly that, that happened actually in Corinth. So it certainly needs to be on the table when we're thinking about testing ourselves. So are we here because I am whatever of this denomination or that denomination? And I'm not saying people can't be in them but that's not your ground of salvation. That's not why we're able to participate in the Lord's Supper, because we belong to a certain denomination. It's because we belong to Christ. Okay? So that's the first thing. They had schisms and factions. Number two, this is the Lord's Supper, not a private meal. Okay? This is the Lord's Supper, and they were turning it into a party. And, and such a party that the poor people couldn't afford to participate, and the rich people were, were gluttons and drunkards. And Paul rebuked them. And they're not judging the body correctly. They're not judging the significance of why they're gathering as a body. They're not judging the significance of Christ and his once-for-all shed blood. They're, they're, they're falsely understanding this. And third, the significance of the meal must not be compromised. Now, what does that mean? Well, the significance of the meal, Paul said, was that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if we're to examine ourselves to make sure we judge the body rightly, 
we should examine ourselves to see why we believe that we should be participating in the meal. Why am I participating? Am I participating because I believe that Christ died for my sins? And I believe that I'm hoping for him to come again so we can all be gathered together at the Mary's Supper of the Lamb. And I'm not participating not based on my merit, but based on the merits of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And if those things are true, I'm not factitious, factious, I mean, I'm not um, looking at this as some ordinary meal or a private meal, and I'm understanding the significance of what Christ has done for me and why I would even be allowed to participate, then I think that I've examined myself the way God wants me to. I've put it to the test. And then, well, if I do participate, and we should because it's a means of grace, we're coming not because we think we deserve anything, but because God is such a merciful God that he sent us a great Savior. That's how we participate. So, those are two other places in Corinthian correspondence where this dokimazo tests something to determine its genuineness is used. So it's used for the Lord's Supper. It's used in regards to assurance of salvation. And here it's used to determine the sincerity or genuineness of one's Christian love. The word sincerity in the Greek means literally real or genuine. The word it comes etymologically from uh, something that means trueborn. In the, in, in the root of the word, and as it was used in history, it, it meant trueborn meaning a natural biological son. Okay, but but that's not what it means here. Here it meant genuine. It, it, the, you know, nuances of words change with usage over centuries. And the meaning of a word is determined by its usage, usage not its etymology. The etymology is a little clue that might help us see where something came from, but that doesn't determine meaning. Okay? Meaning is determined by usage. Because a word that came from some certain source may be put to different use later in history. And, and if somebody uses it at a different point in history, in a certain context, then what they mean is what we want to know, not where the word came from. Okay? Back to verse 8. So the, the dokimazo is putting the test to see whether there is a, a real or genuine lo- love, not just some pretense or feigned love. And... Of your love. Now, this one creates, again, a little bit of a ambiguity. It doesn't have an object in the Greek, so we don't know whether it's their love for Paul, their love for Christ, their love for other believers, or all of the above. We don't know. Context has to decide. Well, I think, in a sense, all of the above is... It could be that Paul purposely left the object out so that it could be a broad thing, but... The fact is, Paul wanted to know if they really loved him because they'd had a, had a falling out with Paul. Paul wanted to also see this collection go forward so that the love that the Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Achaia and Asia Minor could be shown 
to the Jewish Christians in Judea and thus help unify the church. And certainly when we give out of love for the brethren, we do so because of the love of Christ, that we love Christ. If we love him, we love his children. So I think we can take it in any of those, in all of those ways and not at all be off base in our interpretation of this particular passage. Okay, I have two, two cross-references. Robin, if you could do Hebrews 10.24 and Mike 1 John 3.17-19. through 19. In summary of the passage, by the way, just the big picture, summary of the passage, when Christians give spontaneously by grace, it demonstrates that God has poured love into their hearts. And it's genuine love. And so therefore, Paul does not want to make a command and make giving obligatory and a demand put on everybody because then it doesn't do any good to help us see that there's genuine love. When it's done freely, then it does help in that way. Okay. Hebrews 10.24, yes. Hebrews 10.24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Okay, there it talks about believers uh, uh, encouraging or spurring on love and good deeds. As we see, and this is exactly what's happening in Paul's case, the Macedonians' genuine love that spilled out into their generosity is, is something that sort of spurs on the Corinthians to finish this offering that they've taken earlier. Yes, and then there's a passage in 1 John 3 about Christian love, I think. Verses 17 through 19. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of, of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Yeah, there's another part of this. Assur- there's assurance, isn't it? So... You're not buying assurance by giving, but when you see your brother in need and your heart is filled with compassion and that causes you to take action, that's an evidence of, the, of, of, of genuine love and it helps us with assurance. Okay? But if the church commands and demands and extracts, it doesn't do any good for assurance. You don't, you don't have any choice. I mean, we could make a pew tax. I mean, you know. <laughs> you don't pay, you don't sit. <laughs> but then how would that be showing genuine love? That <laughs> we would remove any such opportunity. We're better off to let everything be free and let people give as they see fit. <laughs> That's been done before, you know. <laughs> Like I said, there's no. It's amazing how creative people can when it can be when it comes to fundraising. But this is one area we don't need to be creative. We just need to put out the means of grace and let God's Holy Spirit work in people's hearts. And when that happens, they love one another and they care for one another and they love the gospel and they care for the spread of the gospel and they do so spontaneously without any um, guilt or. Uh, scheme to make them to 
to take action. Let's go to verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Now, this is a tremendous verse and certainly one that we want to carefully interpret because it's one that's misused by that very movement that Justin Peters is coming to talk about. All right? This is one of their favorite proof texts. And I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I heard teaching on this verse and it temporarily convinced me that that's the way it was. But here's what it says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might be rich. Let me tell you how I heard that interpreted in 1973 and unfortunately did not have enough discernment to know it was a bad interpretation. A preacher was saying about this verse, well, we have those guys out there that say that this means Jesus was spiritually poor. I'm telling you, Jesus never was spiritually poor. <laughs> I don't know why these guys always have a southern accent. I may not be very good at it. All I can do is Iowa farmer. And then the point was, well, being how we couldn't be spiritually poor, must have been financially poor, therefore the converse has to be he became financially poor so that you come, become financially rich. And then that is the groundwork for this entire doctrine that having riches is evidence that you're truly a Christian. And the leaders uh, have been found living in opulence. And when somebody asks him, well, how come you have this, uh, two mansions and uh, two jet airplanes and riches untold, and you're an ordained minister, the answer, and I've heard this answer, is because I need to be a good example for the flock. God wants everybody to be rich. I'm the leader. If I'm very rich, it'll inspire them. And they'll want to be like me. That's the problem. Justin Peters will explain. I won't. Uh, I don't have to do it. When, if you come to the seminar, he'll explain all of this, how it works, and what's wrong with it. Now let's go back and see if that's what this verse is really saying. Is it actually talking about Jesus's relative poverty on the earth? When as some have said so, like it says, the foxes have dens and so on, and some man has no place to lay his head. But as I've been reading some very good theological material on this passage, that, that interpretation is probably not even correct. Because for one thing, Jesus' life up until his crucifixion, the 30 years as a carpenter's son and the years with his disciples, was not extraordinarily poor compared to everybody else. These were all peasants. Nobody had a lot. So he really lived an ordinary peasant life. Now, he was not a beggar on the corner somewhere in, in abject, extreme poverty. In that verse, there wasn't to say Jesus is more poor than everybody else. It was to say, do you know what you're talking about when you're wanting to be a disciple? You're going to have to live and trust God and so on. So I think a far more plausible understanding of what Paul's saying is that this is a parallel passage to what Paul said in the book of Philippians. 
And so uh, let's turn to Philippians 2 and see uh, what he said there, and I think we'll get the sense of this passage right here. Let me respond to what that, that preacher said about Jesus was never spiritually poor. Well, comparing Jesus in, in the incarnation to any other person, obviously Jesus is not spiritually poor. He's, he's, all, he's powerful. But that's not the comparison I believe Paul's making. Paul's not comparing Jesus to other people. He's comparing Jesus in the incarnation to Jesus in glory before the incarnation. Okay? That's what I believe. And if we were able to see the full glory of Jesus before the incarnation in all of his glory and splendor, what we see on the earth would be an impoverishment compared to that state. Because he walked the earth fully human, fully God. But he did lay aside some divine prerogative. So in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, um, verse, um, well, let's start with verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I would say that 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 passage in Philippians is an explanation of the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The fact that Jesus became poor in the sense of Philippians 2 is does something savingly for your sake. That Jesus at times had no shelter doesn't redeem your sins. So I, so I don't believe that we're talking about just Jesus not having as much money as some people when he was on the earth. It's talking about this humbling himself, being found obedient in the form of a servant. Because that's what he did for our sake. If all Jesus did was live as a poor man, it wouldn't do us any good. But if he died on the cross, that does some good. That's for, that's for our sake. So, I'm, go I'm going to interpret it that way, and I believe I'm right. So, <laughs> um, so, for your sake, he became poor in the incarnation. Now, by the way, he became poor here is present active participle in the Greek, to become, verb to be, present active participle. And this would tell us that this was a voluntary thing that he did, which is another link to Philippians 2. He voluntarily came and become found in the likeness of a man. It was his choice to do so. And then we have a so that clause. Here is why he became a man and suffered on the cross. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And 
what does Paul mean here by become rich? What he means is that we might escape from God's wrath against sin, escape the destiny that awaited us in hell, have the imputed righteousness of Christ, have the Holy Spirit at work in our lives as He is sanctifying us, and have the promise that one day we'll see Him and we'll be like Him. That we'll be raised from the dead, that we'll be transformed, and that we'll be conformed to the image of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And that in glory, when we see Him in His full splendor, that we'll be able to participate in, in the uh, table fellowship of the Mary's Supper of the Lamb. Patrick has something he wants to say. Uh, sounds good to me. Uh, however, <laughs> well, I'm glad I got somebody to convince here. <laughs> however, um, if I were on on the side of that preacher, I might point at um, the whole context and say, "Well, verses uh, one through eight are about money." And verses 11 through 15 are all about money, financial money. So why can't uh, verse 9 be about financial money too? Well, as I said before, for one thing, Jesus being poor in regard to money doesn't do anything for me. All right? So how do I benefit from that? I can't, let's just say I'm a health and wealth preacher. How do I benefit from that? Well, I can't benefit by following Jesus' example because it's a bad thing to not have money. See, see, in that way of thinking, Jesus set a bad example for everybody by not having money because you're supposed to have money to set a good example. So I can't follow him in that way. And if I, uh, So how does that benefit me? I, I just don't see any way it does. And furthermore, at this point, Paul's topic has turned to the issue of genuine love. Okay. So, genuine love being the thing that would motivate us to be generous, we look at Jesus' example and see what genuine love looks like. And and by so doing, we would have a desire to be generous because we've been the recipient of such a magnanimous and infinitely uh, beneficial gift that came from God's love for us. Yes, Larry. I think in response to uh, Patrick's question here, and this is this may be loosely connected, but I come up with a verse, and I think it kind of pretty much kind of nails it. It says uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And I think there's a contrast. Hey, that's a good cross reverence. True riches are not worldly wealth. Right. Uh-huh. Larry, you get the astute reading award. <laughs> and you know what that means? Free coffee for fellowship. <laughs> All right. The award hasn't gone up any, I'm sorry to say. But that is an astute reading. <laughs> Excuse now, me. Now, I was going to quote... Uh, Dr. Garland, uh, whose commentary on Second Corinthians has been very helpful to me, and he quotes Cranfield, who's a famous scholar, quote, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, unquote, denotes 
uh, says Cranfield, the utterly undeserved, royally free, effective, overflowing mercy. <laughs> That's what it is. The grace of the Lord Jesus is his more overflowing mercy. It, and, and then uh, Garland says, it sums up God's merciful action toward humanity. When we have been the beneficiaries of such undeserved grace, how can true Christians shut their hearts or purses to brothers and sisters in need or begrudge every penny they may share with others? Then he cites 1 John 3 that we've already read. And that's the point. The point is the lavish gift that we've received because Christ poured out his life for us should motivate us to love the brethren. Because we have been recipients of riches beyond any kind of money that they ever could do. Yes? I wanted to go back to where we're talking about where Jesus is poor. Actually, being that he's God, uh, son of God, he's a king. Yet when he comes here on earth, he doesn't live as a king. But he's not exactly poor because when they crucified him, his clothes were sold because they were rich linen. So he, yeah. And also, he never walked alone. There were women who were supporting him, like his Mary uh, Magdalene and Mary, his mother, and other women were there with him when they were traveling to different places. They were the ones that were providing for him and yes. his disciples. Yes, that, I agree with you. I don't believe that Jesus was extraordinarily poor. I just don't believe that was the case. He was more like the ordinary people around, or, uh, plus the extraordinary provision of God to the people. Now, so I agree with you. So that, therefore, we have Jesus' incarnation laying aside the divine, laying aside divine prerogatives to be found in the form of a man. Now, continuing my quote of Garland, it says, The affirmation that Christ became poor for our sakes has been taken in an economic sense to mean Christ's literal poverty during his earthly life. We do not know that Jesus was literally impoverished, however, and he's probably no worse off economically than the other Palestinian subjugated under Roman rule and their puppets, client kings, and priestly aristocracy. To be consistent, an economic interpretation would imply that through Christ's material poverty, others remain materially rich. This hardly applies for the Macedonians. The riches, therefore, can only be spiritual riches, which makes one's material possessions irrelevant. Christ's poverty must refer to something more than having no place to lay his head. Then he goes on, Christ's incarnation climaxed in his death, and the principle of interchange, he became poor, we became rich, is the same as in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Quote, Jesus gave up his righteousness, becoming sin, in order that believers might become the righteousness of God. The riches of salvation, says Garland, are not something that only await us in glory, but our spiritual blessings we can experience right now. The test for the Corinthians will be whether this spiritual enrichment will have any tangible effect on the way they share their economic riches with others. Paul drives home the point in the next chapter that God makes us rich so that we can be generous with others. So, I agree with that. And so, Christians... What do, we, what do we learn? How do we apply this to our lives? We should all take into consideration what great sacrifice Jesus made in order that we might be the recipients of riches beyond measure. 
These riches that we have, the riches of Christ, are undeserved. They're unearned. They're only inherited because we have an inheritance that's been provided by the Father. And since we have these great riches, we should look at our duties as Christians as never onerous or burdensome. That we would share, that we would give, that we would care, that we would show Christian love and benevolence is not an onerous duty, but a gracious work. And the Macedonians who participated in the gracious work, even in their dire situations, were just simply showing that they were indeed the beneficiaries of the riches of Christ. What a wonderful thing to remember. If you notice a lot of the songs that we sing, and I thank Jim and the music ministry because they work very, very hard not just to be able to play music, but to be able to find music that glorifies Christ. All right? And you know, and you, and you also notice if you come here very often, we're not stuck on one genre. Okay? We're open to all kinds of styles, but they have to have one thing in common. They help us worship God in spirit and truth. They glorify Christ. Now, if you think of the songs, some of the great ones we sing, especially a lot of old hymns, but there's new ones that have the same sentiment. How often we sing about what he has done for us. I was looking up there. I went up to get my preaching Bible, and the song list was there. I don't know if it's for today or not, but one of the songs on there was, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? An interest in my Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain. I got to quit because I'll probably forget remember, forget some of it. But um, now there is there again. That's that's just singing about what we just studied here. That his riches, he laid aside his his divine prerogatives to take us impoverished sinners and, and impart to us undeserved riches beyond measure. And, you know, if our Christianity gets off track and, and gets our, if our mind gets on other things besides that, whatever it is, there, there's so many ways to get off track. You can get off track with the social gospel where you neglect the whole concept of salvation. You can get off track with the health and wealth gospel where you start focusing on the things of this world. You can get off track in so many ways. But if we keep this central, redemption and atonement, and our, our love genuine love that's caused because of what God has done first for us and our willingness to express that to the body of Christ by caring for them and to the lost by sharing with them the truth of the gospel, we're not going to get too far off the rails. (laughs) Amen? Let's just stay, stay inside the dotted lines. Somebody said not too long ago, why are you so narrow to me? And I said, I'm not trying to be too narrow. I'm just trying to stay inside the dotted lines. Who, who draws the dotted lines? God does in the Bible. So I'm just, I, I, I don't want to, I can't make laws that God didn't make, but I can't break ones that he did make. So we just, we're just trying to understand what he said. If we stay within what he said, we're going to be wonderfully blessed. I need to make a note that we have to cross-references to do when we begin next time. 
So I'm going to just make a note here. Start with the re- we'll do the cross references and go to the next verse. But next week we'll look at um, the Paul's discussion about finishing what had been started earlier, and we'll get some more understanding about the Christian relationship to giving and what's important about it and how it should be. It's interesting that mostly Paul talks about attitudes in here. Motivations and attitudes, genuine love, grace, gracious work, generosity. He talks about attitudes, not laws. All right, you, you, you have to give so much or else. He doesn't do that. He just talks about what kind of attitude we have. The Lord loves a joyful giver. So, that being said, God bless you and enjoy the fellowship time. And Ryan is preaching to us from First John, and we also have communion today.